We are It's More Than Just a Chant. We are inspirational creators, difference makers, world changers, and we are one community. Join alums Jared and Ross as they uncover stories of Penn Staters and their unique professional and personal journeys. We are Penn State, and this is Lion Legacy. All right, episode 50 of Lion Legacy. And Jared, Jared lets me do the all right every 25 episodes. I actually remember episode 25. I was like, can I do the all right? And he's like, yeah, go ahead. So here we are, friends, listeners, episode 50, and I get to do the all right. But that is not the most important thing here. Jared, 50 episodes. Crazy, huh? Crazy to think we, I think I contacted you November of 2020 about Correct. This, this crazy idea. Correct. I remember after a Penn yep. State football, I was obviously watching alone in my apartment because of the pandemic and had this crazy idea. And here we are 50 episodes later, which is nuts, right, to think about. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we've knocked out, knocked out quite a few here. You just look back on, the again, the, one of the things that we've said, and I'm, I apologize, at risk of repeating myself from the past, we wanted to cast a wide net right we think about all the folks that we've spoken with all the cool journeys right you've got people that are graduated a few years ago to graduated a few decades ago right like and just all the awesome stories we've heard and the great things people have done in the world and the worlds of business and everywhere else and it's just it's cool to see in here and we all have the common connection at penn state yeah i think we we've certainly learned a lot learned a lot about new professions new industries yeah new journeys. But one thing I think that is constant over those 50 episodes, the pride that people have for Penn State, their willingness to help others and give back and figure out a way to leave the world and maybe a little bit of a cliche in a better spot. Absolutely. Yeah. Greatly appreciate, of course, all the guests that have come on, spent time with us, our promotional partners, Lions Pride, Daily Collegian. Both have been early on with us, supporting us, and we hope that everyone can in turn support them. We've got a great partnership with Katie O'Toole's podcasting class. Just put out a lot of great ideas on guests that we should bring on, including today's. And it's just been really fun as well to spend weeknight nights and evenings with you as well, Ross. And just getting to to chat with you on the podcast as well as after the podcast and catch up on life. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the one thing the the listeners don't hear is Jared and I get on about 15 minutes before the guest comes on and then we're shooting the breeze and then after we do the recording and then we do our intros afterwards just to piece it all together and then we just kind of keep talking and then it's it's a nice catch up with an old buddy of mine here. Exactly. I I do have a, two questions for you. Okay. First one if someone is listening to this podcast, episode number 50, for the first time, you know, we obviously would love for them to start at episode number one with Doug Bennett afterwards. But if they're not, if they're going to skip around, what's the episode that you tell them to listen to next? I always go back to this one because this woman just totally impressed me with her background and stuff that she was doing in the world. I go back to Jean Olwang. Just working with Sir Richard Branson, all the great things that she's done in her career, just such a go-getter, making the world a better place with her philanthropies and all the work that she's doing there. Just, I think that's a great episode of somebody that has had a very interesting career, has gone after what she wants in life and is giving back. And, you know, at the end of the day, I remember her saying her favorite memories of Penn State are just hanging out with her girlfriends. I just thought that was so cool. And meanwhile, she's high up executive in this multinational corporation. You can't go wrong with that one. That's that is for sure. I remember we were both kind of in awe after we hit the end recording button after that episode and everything that she's accomplished. I'd have to go and maybe this is a little bit personal right now. Allie and I are on this national parks kick and I really enjoyed Matt Enderly, who is a national park ranger. He actually came on, even though we don't put out the video, but he came on. Do you remember? Yeah. In his full uniform. Yep. 
I think he just had some fascinating stories and I just appreciate it even more. I appreciate the national parks actually because of that podcast. And I think I would encourage everyone to listen and then go on their own national parks journey as well. It's an interesting point in that we conduct the interviews here, right? And we come into it with an open mind and we're learning something new. As a listener, they can pick and choose what they want to listen to. So I would actually challenge our listeners that haven't been with us through the, this whole journey here. Go back and listen to something that may be, maybe not your top choice, right? Maybe you might learn something. You might be pleasantly surprised. You learn about somebody's journey and they're in a field that you maybe didn't particularly care for. And maybe you changed your mind on it. I don't know. It's just a, something fun to challenge our listeners out there. If you haven't listened to many of them, go back and kind of challenge yourself to listen to something new. That's a great point. The other question. Yep. A little bit of a trivia question, this one. Okay. How many countries have had at least one person <laughs> listen to Lion Legacy? Okay. How many different countries have had a listener? At least one person. Yep. Listen okay. to Lion Legacy. Uh, I'm going to go with, I don't know, 30. 48. 48. All right. 48. I, I, I lowballed it. There you go. We're Look at that. Truly global, huh? There you go. We have 48, 48, 48. countries represented. Yep. Yep. Well, if you're if you're in another country and you're listening to this, first of all, thank you. And second of all, you know, send us a send us a note. Uh, maybe they're send us a note. Say, hey, I'm listening from fill in the blank country. I don't know. Just to say hi, but we're happy to have you. Yeah, please do. We always appreciate any reviews on podcast platforms. If you ever want to get in touch with us via email, it's roar, R-O-A-R at lionlegacypodcast.com. But speaking of history, my friends, yep. this kind of segues into our guest this evening. We got a good one, folks. This is a good one. They're all good, but this is a really good one. We spoke with Pete Carmichael. Again, thanks to Professor O'Toole's class. They sourced Professor Pete Carmichael, who's at Gettysburg College. He's a history professor there, specializing in the Civil War. And we go deep on the Civil War, Jared. We do. I mean, I, I've always enjoyed history. I know you like history. We're not one to necessarily pull out all the textbooks, but we got a really cool perspective on a very interesting time in American history, right? Granted, 160 years ago. And just Pete's background, right? How he came to be, where he is, his love for history and the Civil War, how he does his research, some of the books that he's written, his approach to teaching. We cover like a lot of ground, right? And it was all really cool. It's a lot different than, I don't know, a lot different than the history classes I remember like from high school. I'd take a class with him any day. Oh, I mean, yeah. Just refreshing oh, yeah. the passion, his perspective. Yeah. I could see why students would be lining up out the door to be in his class. And by the way, it's not just what you'll hear in the episode ahead here is not just historical, factual knowledge and opinions. He's tying it back to present day, which is really cool. And you'll hear that. I don't want to give too much of it away. Yes. And I know you mentioned Professor O'Toole's podcasting class, the student behind this one. I got to thank Adam Babetsky for suggesting Professor Carmichael. I actually looked Adam up today. He is now at Northwestern getting his master's degree in journalism, cool. actually investigative journalism. Very interesting, especially considering what's going on at Northwestern these days. But great work by Adam for suggesting Dr. Carmichael. Absolutely. So, Jared, with that, again, a little bit of a longer intro here to celebrate our 50th episode. But let's go ahead and we're going to crack those books. We're going to go back in time with Professor Pete Carmichael. All right. Let's welcome Pete Carmichael, a two-time graduate of Penn State, a Master of Arts in 1992, followed by a PhD in history in 1996. Pete is a leading expert in 19th century American history, specifically the Civil War. After teaching stops at numerous universities, he currently holds the title of Robert C. Floor, Professor of Civil War Studies at Gettysburg College. Pete is a sought-out speaker and author of four books. It's great to have you on Lion Legacy, Pete. Thanks so much for the invitation. I appreciate it. Excellent. Hey, Pete, great to have you with us. We're going to start with a little bit of a game here. I'm going to give you a few words, All phrases. Right. I want to know what the first thing is that comes to your mind on these. All right? Yeah, I'm ready. First, first one is General Robert E. Lee. 
besieged. <laughs> I can elaborate if you like, but I'd say yeah, under attack. And I think his historical reputation, in a sense, will never, ever recover. Certainly not in my lifetime. Maybe there will come a day in which people will look at the past without applying so vigorously today's values. And I think that certainly he was far from perfect. We know he's a slave owner. We know that he led an army that was, of course, determined to lead a nation to its independence as well as to preserve the institution of slavery. No one's defended him here. But if we want to think about him today, besieged, I think is the right word. Okay, interesting. Our next one is Abraham Lincoln. Venerated and rightfully so, but he was also a man who we should really appreciate for being the consummate politician. In today's world, we keep clamoring for political unity, and everyone seems to forget we're in a democracy, and that means rough and tumble politics. And Abraham Lincoln was a master at it, and thankfully so. He was a statesman. He was a visionary. But man, he could get into the gutter and make people pay who didn't play nicely with him. Okay, well said. Next one on the list is Ulysses Grant. I wrote a paper in my senior year in which I described Lee and Grant. Lee was a consummate gentleman. And when he came to Appomattox, he had his dress coat on. And there's Grant. Grant's boots are splattered with mud. His coat's all wrinkly. His hair's in a tussle. He's smoking a cigar. And I use that to illustrate the difference of character. Now, I'm from Indiana. And that explanation is what they call lost cause, meaning that it has an interpretation that favors the South. I had a low opinion of U.S. Grant and how wrong I was. I think Grant was a remarkable general. I think he was a solid president. And what he exemplifies and that we should all admire is persistence. You can't beat a man, right, who isn't willing to give up. That person doesn't give up, you're going to beat him. And that's Grant. He is not a man who is going to be defeated. He willed victory, and not just by using more men and utilizing superior resources. He won through skill and maneuver and a strategic vision, and a strategic vision that brought the South to its knees. Okay. Fascinating stuff here. Next one is Jefferson Davis. <laughs> it's difficult to get beyond Davis's personality, which is fairly unlikable. He was easily offended. He cared about people recognizing him as the person in power. In contrast to Lincoln, Lincoln was always the smartest man in the room, but Lincoln never felt compelled to prove that point. And that style of leadership that Lincoln had was a way to bring consensus, whereas Jefferson Davis, there wasn't really any attempt to do that. He was a man, it was his way or the highway. Now, we should note, it is pretty remarkable what he accomplished in four years, building a nation from scratch, difficult enough. Building a nation by scratch while you're under war, it's much more challenging. It's remarkable the nation, the Confederacy, lasted as long as it did, and certainly Davis deserves some credit. As I do the quotation marks, <laughs> recognizing that you can't hear quotation marks. Okay. And the last one on the list, and this one hits home for you because it's where you're located, is Gettysburg. People see this as the great turning point of the war. That's unfortunate, not the case. This certainly was a setback and a serious one for the Confederacy and particularly for Lee's army. But Northern morale hit rock bottom the following year in 1864. Independence, victory for the South was still within reach all the way to the fall of 1864, when there were a series of victories that ensured Lincoln's re-election. But this battlefield, which I hope the two of you have visited, is a compelling place. It is a powerful place. It is the place where all Americans should come and they should think deeply about the meaning of democracy and they should do it from a long historical perspective and they should do it from how Northern soldiers wanted us to remember their sacrifice. And they wanted us to never forget that the Union cause 
was a defense of democracy and Republican government, not just for this nation, but for the entire world. And they also believed, even though many of them did not fight to end slavery, but they still believed that slavery was wrong and for the nation to endure that it must go. And you can, in fact, feel that sacrifice in a really powerful, palatable way. I thought I'd get tired of this place, and I don't. I still I live next to the battlefield. North Carolina regiments formed up in my backyard, and I still feel the power of this place every single day. And it's a blessing, man. It's a blessing to be here after the journey that began at Penn State. Man, I never in a million years would have imagined I'd be here at Gettysburg. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah, that's amazing. And we're already five minutes, six minutes into this podcast. And I feel like I've learned so much already from you. But speaking of kind of learning and knowledge base, the range of knowledge on Civil War, right, varies from person to person. But what's one thing about the Civil War that you think would surprise most people? I think what would surprise most people is that the North did not win just because they had more men and superior resources. That the North won ultimately because of a strategic vision that Grant had, as well as I think Sherman and Lincoln. And it was a vision in which Union armies, that they were united in purpose and that their aim was not just the destruction of Confederate forces, but to destroy the South's capacity to wage war. And it is the combination of battlefield victories and undermining the infrastructure, the roads, the factories, the fields, all of that. That ultimately is what broke the will of the Southern people, is what made Confederate armies ultimately not efficient forces in the field. That's what brought a Union victory. And we can think about Vietnam, and my God, we can think about our two recent wars in the Middle East, and we can see that the side that has the more men that has the superior weaponry and technology, that's not a guarantee of victory, is it? And so the idea that, anyway, Ulysses S. Grant, they refer to him even to this day as the Butcher Grant, because he just had all this manpower that he could basically squander. Launch an attack, oh, it got repulsed, we'll do it again, doesn't matter, we got more men back here. Oh wait, there's immigrants getting off the boats in Boston and New York City. Well, got them to rely upon, so I don't need to be imaginative, I don't need to be creative. I don't need to worry about the result of this attack. I'm just going to grind down the enemy in a true war of attrition. It was not a war of attrition. So I think that's one of the false perceptions of the Civil War. And the last point I'll make, and it's an important one, most of your listeners don't know this. Lee's army captured African-Americans in Pennsylvania who had never spent a single day of their lives in slavery. But they were captured as runaway slaves and crowd and sent down to Virginia and sold on the slave markets, probably a few hundred. Hmm. So for black folks here in central Pennsylvania, the invasion of Lee's army in the summer of 1863, I wasn't just a Confederate army. That was an army of slave catchers. Wow. This is cool stuff. I can't, <laughs> I'm excited we for more get stories. You guys, like we got to get you to Gaysburg. I'll forget this if I don't say it now. Penn State, the Richard Civil War Center, they fund at least two, maybe three Penn State undergrads to come to Gettysburg National Park, and they work as historians. They give walking tours, they do research. It's an incredible experience. And so for your listeners, that's a good thing to have as an alum to know that your institution is being represented here at this site on the front lines of history. And the Richard Center has been doing that for some time now, for more than a decade, in fact. Excellent. Hey, so people want to talk a little bit more about you real quick here. Okay. So how did this passion for history develop, right? Or more specifically for the Civil War in this 19th century broadly, like where did this all come about in your youth or early on when you were a teenager? When was this? I'm from Indiana. And the first Civil War battlefield I visited, I was two, which of course I don't remember. There's a picture of me in my little diaper on a cannon, right? <laughs> uh, but my mom had a great love for history, as did my grandfather. And so we came to Gettysburg when I was six or seven. 
And so the interest was already there. But then again, coming to this place, I was just immediately immersed myself in the Civil War. And I truly cannot remember a day in which I didn't want to be a Civil War historian. I remember all the trips that we took as a family. We did one that was non-history. It was Disney in Florida. I was nine. I detested it. I told my parents, never again. <laughs> my highlight was I got a book by William Frazanito when it was on the Battle of Gettysburg, the photography of Gettysburg. It's a fascinating book. I still own that copy. And I just loved it. And then I did reenacting when I was 12 or 13. And I needed people to talk to about the Civil War. And you're not going to find many 14 or 15-year-old boys who will do that. And reenacting the mixed bag, there are some people who are really serious historians and there are others who use those weekends as true escape. And whatever, it's fine. When you get away, have a few beers, shoot a few guns. <laughs> yeah, and that was it for some, not for, not for all. And there's some really serious historians that we use them at the park here. I should say we, the National Park does, as living, histor living historians, and they're quite good. Certainly we could sense and feel your passion there's some people that may be listening to this or maybe they see the episode before they even listen and say, I don't need to know about the Civil War. That ha happened in the 1800s. What's your response to that? So I'm going to give my response. But I'd really like to ask you guys a question here. Do you take any history when you're, we don't need to name professors. Did you all take any history when you were at Penn State? I did not. I don't think I took a gen ed for history. I took it in high school, of course, right. American but, history, European history. Yeah. But I did not take history. I don't think. Well, what puts you off about history? Like, even if you said, hey, I'm not going to take it. What puts you off? Why is it like not that interesting to people or to some people, I should say? Ross, do you, have you always loved no, history? So I was going to say, I was going to let Jared answer that. I actually didn't. I'm thinking back. I did not take a history course at Penn State either, but I think I'll tell you the reason why is because I remember it just being very text heavy. I love learning about history, but give me the lectures, give me like the headlines. I just don't want to read books upon books upon books about it. I think that was what was off-putting for in my undergrad as far as choosing courses go. But I love history. I think it's all fascinating, like Civil War, World War II, the whole Vietnam era. Like that's, I could listen to this stuff or watch documentaries all day. Yeah, military history is certainly still at the top in terms of people's interest level. Ross, I think you've hit on something, though, and that is the amount of reading that usually comes with the history class is overwhelming, and particularly with students today. Listen, these are people who live off of Twitter and, and Instagram. They have a hard time sustaining a concentration level to, to read an article, let alone a book. So I think that you're right. That's one thing that's very challenging. But here's the main problem with history. And it's this. It is this desire that teachers have to overload their students with too much information. And so it then becomes this maze of facts here, dates here. And the student starts to think, what in God's name is this going to serve me? This is no use. It has no value. And I'll likely forget it by the next semester. That's a tough challenge for anyone in my profession and what one must do are I think two things. The first is history has got to be about people. It's got to be about stories. It's got to be narrative. It's got to capture their attention. And you've got to be willing on my side to say, you know what? I don't have to cover every single detail. That's not the issue here, right? The issue is come up with good stories. And now here's the second part. And it's got to connect to important questions and important ideas. And they go together. I want my students to come out of history class and say, God, you know what? Not only is the past exciting, there's some fascinating individuals here. They captivate me. Oh, but wait a minute. It's forcing me to ask questions, not just about the past, but about society today. I am not suggesting that history repeats itself because it does not. It rhymes. And I think that you can only be a good citizen in this country if you have a good sense and understanding of the past. But if I lead off with that and say to my students, listen, I want you to be a good citizen. And to be a good citizen, you better do well in this class. You better read. You better take notes. That's not going to get them. But what will get them, right, is good stories, interesting stories, engaging stories. And from that, you hope that they'll see the intrinsic value of the past. 
we're struggling though, man. We are struggling. I don't know about Penn State, but we're struggling with majors. I'm not at Gettysburg College because, oh, it's Gettysburg College, right? You a lot of kids come here, they know stuff. <laughs> they know a lot. And they think, hey, Gettysburg, they're gonna be good in history. But across the country, history majors are on the decline. And it's troubling because we're at a point in higher ed where it seems that everything's based upon, hey, can I get a job? And what's that paycheck going to bring me? And we are fools on the humanity side to say, oh, it doesn't matter. We're going to take the high road. You can take the high road all the way to extinction. I get off your high horse here and get down. And I do this with every prospective student and their parents at Gatesburg College. You come to me. I would get you locked into a network of other historians. You will get professional opportunities here at Gettysburg. You will get nowhere else. And then when you finish in four years, you'll be a really good historian. And you'll have lots of options in front of you. Not just teaching, right? Museum work, curatorial work, things called digital humanities. There's a wide range. Or going to business. I just took, and I won't mention names here. I don't like name dropping. But I took a guy who is one top 20 wealth in this nation. He loves history. It is his history training that's been foundational to his success in business. We teach you how to think. We teach you how to write. We teach you how to analyze. Come to history and we'll get you ready for any career, any career. We really do truly believe that. Great answer. I love that. So we'll talk about your research here for a moment. Sure. Yeah. This is a time period when there's limited historical documentation compared to today, right? You're dealing with no video, no voice recordings, limited writing, drawings, paintings, maybe early photography that you alluded to early on. When we're talking about these historical periods, how hard is it for an expert like yourself to decipher between the fact and the fiction over the course of your ongoing research and piecing together the facts to make sure that the story is factually correct? You know, Ross, I think that's a really great question. And it's a great question because today we are confronted with the idea of fake news, which is, of course, not new to the U.S. or new to the world. And you might know this, but the fake news as an idea was actually created by the Nazis. They were the ones who created that idea. And that idea today, and this is not getting political, it is to explain that it has destabilized the idea that there is truth. And that's a very troubling, I think, consequence. Because things did happen. Facts do matter. But with history, and this gets back to our earlier, your earlier question, if what I do revolves entirely around just get me the facts, just recover the facts, and lead me to the truth, that's what a lot of students want when they come to my class. Dr. Carmichael, just get the facts. Right. Let's retrieve them. And then I'll put them in a narrative, blue book or multiple choice, whatever you want, Dr. Carmichael. That's what we'll do for you. you. We'll give you the truth as you see it, and then we'll be done. That's not history. That recovery of facts is certainly an element. But history needs to be understood as interpretations. And so what I do for my students is I say, all right, we have three different letters from Confederate soldiers writing about what Gettysburg meant to them. And all three letters reach strikingly different conclusions. All right, boys and girls, which one's the truth? And the answer is all above, right? Yeah. All of the above. And so when we use this word fake news, what it then prevents us from seeing is that there are interpretations. Some interpretations are more persuasive and believable than others, but it reminds us that different opinions can exist side by side without saying, I don't believe your opinion. Your opinion is a falsehood because it disagrees with me. No, the history shows us. People who stood on the same ground at the same moment, experienced same historical activity, come out of that with three very different understandings as to what happened and why it mattered. There's a great gift of history right there. And, and as a follow-up to that, and over the course of your research, obviously you're 
you're constantly researching. And how often do you come up with something? Do you read something new and you say, hey, I didn't know that? I imagine there's others out there, right? Your peers in the historical world that are doing similar research. Maybe somebody comes upon something, but is there obviously nobody is ever at a point where they know everything on a topic, but do you often come across something that's new to you or maybe it's more perspective or piecing information together in a certain way? Yes. So listen, for the Civil War period, we are not going to have any new scholarship or new books that are going to change the idea about slavery as a cause of the war. That's been settled. Now, the different ways that it functioned as a cause of the war, that's, of course, up for discussion and investigation. So some of the big questions about the war, to be perfectly frank, yeah, they've been answered. But there are layers and complexities that we can bring to it. That's the joy of being an academic or a scholar. I get paid often to delve into minutia. I'll give you an example. Today, I saw a book title about Lincoln and his desire to colonize free Black people. I knew that was something that Lincoln had pursued and considered all the way into 1863, I believe. And then I thought that he had given up on the idea. But this new book makes it clear, and it depends whether you believe these authors or not, but makes it clear that all the way to 1865, that Lincoln was still toying with the idea that free Black people should be citizens, not in the United States, but that they should be colonized probably in Africa. Now, that's one interpretation, and I know another a number of scholars who don't agree with that. But I give that, Ross, as just one example to say again that there are ways of enriching and deepening our story. I'll give you one other very quick example. Of late, I've been very interested in Confederate soldiers who are what they call transitionally literate, meaning that they are semi-literate or illiterate. These are fascinating individuals because their letters do not survive in abundance. We have the letters of soldiers who came from the educated or the privileged classes, and their voices are remarkable and scholars have relied upon them heavily. But the voices of these other men, the semi-literate, the illiterate, they are poor, they are down and out, and their letters are rough to read, man. There's no grammar, man, there's no spelling. I said this to my daughter, I was showing her what I did, and she said, God, they're so lucky, they didn't have to worry about grammar. I was like, <laughs> how you can hurt your father like this, right. man? That was just a, man, a stake into the heart. But their story, Ross and Jared, is a story that I don't think has been heard. And I think their story is a story of men who condemned the inhumanity of war. We often point to World War I, and we look at the survivors of that war as being disillusioned, as condemning war for those who sought it out of romance and heroism. They're not the first. They're not the first to do that. These poor semi-literate confederates did i think their story hasn't been fully told so that's where we are big questions you want to argue about grant guess what there'll be a book next year that'll come out about that it'll ask the same questions and basically come up with the same answers but there are other facets of the war that certainly deserve our attention and i think we'll receive it excellent i mean i hadn't thought about that but it makes perfect sense and it's good you know there's all those little pockets yeah. of history that you take the just peel the layers of any, any I'll just say this real quickly. Your listeners might enjoy looking at it. It's a website called Private Voices. Now, when you look it up, type Civil War letters, because if you just type Private Voices, make sure the kids are out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, interesting website. Private Voices is dedicated entirely to semi-literate and illiterate soldiers. There you go. Good stuff. I love these anecdotes. This is wild. We're going to shift a little bit here. We're going to talk about more of your work at Gettysburg College. Obviously pivotal, as you mentioned, in with the Civil War, American history overall. A little bit of a softball question here, but among the very specific courses that you teach, which one's your favorite to teach? And do you have any like student stories that, you know, with any aha moments or I don't know, just we'll leave that as a broad question as far as your favorite class and any student stories. The introductory Civil War class that I teach here is an absolute joy. I start with looking at the North and the South before the Civil War, coming of the war, then the war itself, and then Reconstruction. The 
I got a great classroom. That classroom is the battlefield. So my students, I send them out on the battlefield. They'll do research at various monuments. They'll do original research in the archives here. And so I have a place where the students, again, we talked about the books and the, oh my God, and this kid's like, I can't read another long book here. Well, you know what? We can immerse you in the war here at Gettysburg College because of our location. And so the class has a certain vibrancy to it. And I have a lot of students who are juniors and seniors who are not history majors and they are fantastic students. They have real intellectual curiosity. They feel like, hey, I'm at Gettysburg. I should take a Civil War class. I had a young woman, she was on the golf team. She made it to the, it's D3 here. She made it to the NCAA D3 tournament, right? She was great. And she was just an amazing student. Physics major, remember? Physics. And she said to me, yeah, you know, history is kind of a hobby to me. I swear to God, that's like eviscerated me. Oh, history is kind of a hobby. She's ace in the class. <laughs> so she went off after she graduated and she went into the Navy and she was assigned to a nuclear sub. So I sent her a book congratulating her. Joseph Conrad, who writes a lot of seafaring stories. Heart of Darkness is his favorite book. I sent it to her and inside I wrote, I said, yeah, you know, physics has always been kind of a hobby of mine. And yeah, I hope you enjoyed this book because I heard those nuclear subs pretty much run themselves. So you'll have a lot of time to read. <laughs> no, cool. I've got a lot of great students. I saw, I saw, forget this. I, it was at a conference. It's called the Lincoln Forum. It's a place that it's an organization that welcomes people from all walks of life. And this guy came up to me and he said, you were my teaching assistant at Penn State. And he said, you sat down with me and you really helped me with my writing. And I really appreciated that. And I'm telling you, man, that's, those are moments like that. You're like, okay, what I do has a purpose and has a way of connecting and, and helping people find their way in this world. It's a small thing, but all those small things really add up. And I, listen, anyone who writes books, they're kidding themselves if they think their books are going to change the world and the people are going to be reading them even 50 years from now. That's not what happens. But what I find to be so meaningful is that we oversee at Gaysburg College an internship program. I place between 20 to 30 students with the help of my staff at national parks from Little Bighorn, Custer, of course, <laughs> met his end, all the way to Boston, Mass. That's what I did when I was in college. That's what I did during the summers when I was at Penn State. I went from Penn State and I go to Virginia, that's where I work, knowing that my students are out there engaging the public just as I did. I, mean, I can't tell you how much that means to me. And I'll get really personal here since we're all friends at PSU. I got pretty sick in 2013. I had a cancerous brain tumor. Wow. And hmm. I was told initially that I had less than two years to live. And you can only imagine what goes through one's mind. Not the first thinking I'd ever see my girls grow up. Leaving my wife was horrible. And as I was taking stock of my life, there was one thing that among many that I thought that would matter. And that was this internship program. And I got it funded, endowed. I knew it would live on. I knew we'd keep reaching kids, connecting them to the public. And I know what I'm talking about here in terms of interpreting the past. I and mean, like people are probably saying, you're talking about history, man. <laughs> you're talking about telling the story to the lives of dead people. Like that can't matter that much to you. But for some reason it did. And it was one of those things. And obviously I did have a cancerous brain tumor. It was, I did not have a glioma. They thought I had a glioma. And they were wrong about that. And thank God they were. I was at Johns Hopkins and they were amazing. But is a blessing. It didn't feel like it at the time. It was a horrific thing to endure, especially for my family. But coming through that and thinking again about, I'm sure you all feel the same way about people who have touched your lives. I mean, you two wouldn't be where you are right now. If there were people at Penn State and elsewhere who did little things here and there to make such a difference. And that's just a reminder to all of us, those gestures, man, damn, they matter. And even though sometimes you might not see the consequence of it. You just got to always know 
I got to reach out. I got to connect. And you never know. You shake that tree. You never know what's going to happen. Damn lucky to have the family that I have and and push forward and, and live life right to its yeah. fullest. Yeah, we're certainly glad you're here today for many reasons. I want to take it back a little bit. As I mentioned in the introduction, you've written a number of books. Your latest is The War for the Common Soldier, which is available on Amazon. Yeah. The title intrigued me, though. I'd love to you to go into a little bit more detail on what right. that means. So what that means is what I've sort of indicated about my approach to history. What I've done in this book is I tell a number of individual biographies of soldiers, both Union and Confederate, of all classes and all backgrounds. And the war for the common soldier, it explores all things that these men had to contend with, and not just the fighting and not just the surviving in the armies, but it is dealing with the very personal and private issues that they contended with, which are absolutely essential if you're going to get the complete picture of the soldier experience. And so I try to see it from every single angle, from the relationships with their wives or their girlfriends, to the material things that they actually carried, to their relationships with their comrades. It is an attempt to try again to capture the totality of the experience, but to do it in such a way that it hones in on the individual life in all of its fullness and all of its complexity. Often history books, the writer has a topic sentence that has his or her idea, and then a few pieces of evidence to support that. And the next paragraph, this is again why history is so, let me say, dull to most people. What I wanted to do was not extract little quotes from letters, but instead take a set of letters over a sustained period of time and to show how that individual navigated his world. And what one found, or what I found at least, is that these men at heart were pragmatists. They were pragmatists not just in action, but also in thought. And you see an evolution in these men who again, came to see how war was transforming them in ways that they could never have imagined. But I went to stress, and here's another, what people might be surprised to learn. Civil War soldiers did not survive the war and then all suffer from PTSD. We today are quick to apply that label to the women and men who serve our nation. And I'm not here to dispute whether that diagnosis is correct or not. My point is that the basis of that diagnosis has a very specific historical context. And during the Civil War, the word trauma didn't even exist. The idea that a man would come out of a battle without a wound, but still somehow be shaken by what he has experienced, that was beyond their comprehension. So I'll give you a real quick specific that's in the book as well. A Union officer who had quite a combat record, strong one, solid one. And then in 1864, a shell exploded near him, but he was not hit by any of the fragments. Not hit. No wound. A day later, he disappeared. He got on a boat and essentially deserted. And the doctors writing about this case were utterly puzzled because he was a man, they believed, was a man of character. He was courageous. How can a courageous man suddenly break down, especially when he wasn't actually wounded? Now, in time, soldiers as well as doctors came to appreciate that a man could only endure so much. And they got the stresses of war would break men down psychologically. Of course, they didn't use that word as well. So there's a growing awareness that combat can affect men in a deeply personal and private way. But the soldiers themselves had a different idea about courage. Civil War soldiers were wired to kill. And I can't stress that enough. And when they confronted those inner demons that would have pushed them to desert or to run from battle, they fought hard against it. Because they believed if they succumbed to that, that they weren't men, that they were weak, that they lacked character. Now, here's a just a telling example of that. This soldier confided to his family that in the middle of the night that he was waking up 
in a cold sweat because his dreams were that horrible. Now, I should note, he never, ever described the dreams. But the takeaway from this is that he then told his family that he, in essence, needed to control his dreams. He needed to will himself through his dreams so that he would not wake up in a cold sweat and deal with the terrors of whatever he had endured on the battlefield. That is a very different conception as to what a human being has the capacity to control or should control. But there was that expectation, men of courage, men of duty, that they should be able to persevere through the fear, come out through the other side. Again, these soldiers all knew that they weren't going to be the same. And some were more damaged than others. And there's some very good work on that. There is a book that, and I deal with this a little bit, after the war, families having to take their relatives who were Civil War veterans and having to commit them to what they called asylums. A soldier from Indiana who had survived the prison camp at Andersonville, Georgia, his daughter, when she put him in a mental institution, she wrote on the application that her father, whenever he met anyone, even for the first time, he started to go on about Andersonville. And then he would take this person to his backyard where he had built Andersonville on a miniature scale. And he would give them a tour of the prison. So there's plenty of examples of men who suffered from what we would call PTSD. But most of them. Right. Wow fascinating perspective yeah so that's the book in the book again like i want to stress the war for the common soldier is a book that took a long time a lot of research but i got to know a lot of different men through their letters and diaries and i'm telling you man historians are also snoops and i tell my students that man if you like to pry into people's private lives this is the job yeah, for you there you right? go right? who doesn't do that i want to also bring it up a little bit more it's a present day and the past few years, there's been a lot of controversy right around historical marks of the Civil War, the Confederate flag, the Robert E. Lee statues. Some people view it as honoring America's past, while others view it as white supremacy. Certainly, it's caused, regardless of what opinion you have, there's a lot of division and controversy. Curious about your perspective on, on how this should be handled. Well, I think that for many of the Confederate monuments that you're referencing, not just to Lee, but to the ordinary Confederate soldiers, that they are in communities or connected to buildings of public power. And I understand that within those communities that I think that those debates should take place and they should really be decided at a local level. But I'll say this, there is a danger today, especially today, that the word racist can be easily applied to someone. And when they're easily applied to someone, it's very difficult to ever get away from that label. And so what I'm about to say, I hope that people understand that my desire is to have many of these monuments stand, not because I believe that the Confederate cause was a virtuous one or that I believe that the Confederacy had nothing to do with slavery, Confederacy was devoted to the institution of slavery. The cause was a wrong cause and the right side won. Let me make that unmistakably clear. And yet I want, when I do what's called interpretation, when I give talks, when I give tours, I want to be at a Confederate monument in, I don't know, Sussex County, Virginia, where there still is one. Because at that monument, not only did you have community that was committed to segregation and Jim Crow. And that monument, that Confederate monument was an emblem of that power. And I want to be able to stand there and I want to be able to point to that monument and I want to be able to have that discussion with an audience. And I want to tell that audience as well that at that Confederate monument in Sussex County, Virginia, that during the civil rights movement, Bach folks came there and they protested. I think that there is always a risk when you start to scrape away memorials to anyone's history. I think that there are places in Europe that continue to, in a sense, and when I say preserve, that's the wrong word, but they have not destroyed the fascist legacy, not entirely. Now, in Germany, they most certainly have. But there are other places where you can go in Europe and you can see vestiges of it. Again, I get why people would say, listen, 
Carmichael, do you have any Jewish ancestors who were killed in Europe? Where the hell do you get off to say that these fascist emblems should stand? I get where that's coming from. I get why someone who is of African descent would say, what? Get these monuments out of here. I get it. But listen, history is about contested perspectives. And we have to reach a point where it's not a binary. You're right. You're wrong. You're a saint. You're a sinner. Man, we got to pull back from that and try to understand why these monuments came into existence, understand how those monuments exhibit power, demonstrate power, stand for power to this very day. You come to Gettysburg, you stand at the Virginia Monument, Robert E. Lee is at the very top. That monument has a message to this day, and that message is of the superiority of the Southern cause, and there is Lee who is on the tallest equestrian monument on the battlefield, the tallest. Northern soldiers at the time, many, were outraged that monument was going on the battlefield. No one's taken that down, nor should they. But I want to go there, and I want to challenge people to get them to see, hey, wait a minute, don't just get lost and pick a charge. That's a tactical maneuver that we absolutely must understand. But let's not just focus on that. Look behind you here. What's that monument say? What's it convey to you? It conveys Confederate unity and solidarity. And it puts Lee as the master of the field. How crazy is that? Damn, he lost this. This is his <laughs> great defeat. And the monument betrays that. I want it there. I want to talk to people about it. I just gave a tour to about 110 people about the experience of slaves in Lee's army. And I should note, of that 110, most of them were old white guys who I hear all the time just care about the Civil War because it's about tactics, right? Flank left. Like, that's all they care about. Nonsense. It's not true. I was glad and honored to give that talk about Confederate slaves in front of the Lee Monument on July 3rd. People who say, hey, things haven't really changed. Black people's history is still being excluded at Civil War sites. It's not true. It is being included, and you can talk about it right there in front of a Confederate monument. That's the right place to do it. I got some blowback, not much, but a little bit of blowback online. Someone said, look, did Carmichael get woke points for doing this in front of the Lee Monument? That's like, that's fine. I'm not going to play that game. But I do. I get why people, again, initially would, oh, wait, why is he doing it there? That seems disrespectful. I get why someone would say that. So rather than me say, you racist dog, <laughs> no, wait, listen, I'm going to acknowledge your point. I get it. I understand why you feel threatened about this, because I'm talking about slaves in front of this monument, venerating Lee. But let's take a step back here. Let's think about what this war was about. And let's think about the experience of Black folks as historical actors whose story has rarely been told at Gettysburg. Let's just focus on that. And you know what? We had a great conversation. It was one of the best educational experiences I've ever been a part of. And kudos to the Park Service for saying, hey, Pete, do you want to do this? And man, I was chopping it at the bit. To do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Interesting stuff. Okay. Another, I guess, request for perspective here, Pete. People often say the history repeats itself. Given some of the political divides we've seen in recent years in the United States, the United States seems less united, more divided. Is it in the realm of possibility, in your opinion, that we would ever see a second civil war? No, I don't think that would ever happen. I think that I was unsettled by January 6th. I, again, I'm just going to have to say what I have to say, but I'll preface it by noting that my students always ask me, are you Republican or Democrat after my classes? All right. And I'll just come clean. I am an independent. I'm not a member of either party. With that said, when you have a presidential candidate who happened to be the president as well, who says before an election that if I lose this election, that the election is fraudulent, that's a demagogue at work. That there's just no other way around it. Any person who's running for elected office who says, if I lose, it's a fake election, it's a false election, and I'm not going to stand for it, even before the outcomes were made, that's a problem. January 6th, that certainly was a problem. And that's an understatement to say that. 
certainly it's unsettling to me to know what the future might bring on that front. But with that said, no, I don't think we're anywhere close to that at all. I think that there are some divisions that we see between what I'd say is white working people, especially in the countryside. And I get why they feel estranged and pushed to the margins. I do worry that they will increasingly feel that way, that there is a, a Washington that is not aware of or even cares about their interests and their needs. I do worry that there would be a political sort of militarization that occurred. But I'm telling you, the right, the far right and the far left with our, our media, and I'll just say it, I think the media, no matter where you turn, does a, just a grave injustice to this country. I can hardly stand it anymore. I basically read The Economist, which is a British magazine. It's a little bit to the right. I can barely read that now. Every headline, I don't care if it's U.S. or not, has a negative angle to it. The Washington Post, even today, every headline has an angle. I listened to the Wall Street Journal in the morning. Wall Street Journal says, finally, wages are keeping up with inflation and wages are not pushing inflation. That's the, that's what the Wall Street Journal said today. That's what they lead with. And then they come back and say, oh, yeah, but it won't last. Every single article has a negative critical slant. And it's, I wish Fox and MSNBC would just come out and say, hey, this is what we stand for. Just come clean with it. Don't pretend that you're objective. But it's more importantly is this. It is a press that feeds off negativity hypercriticalness. There is a doom and gloom that's not American. We are a pragmatic people and we are a pragmatic people who gets the job done and should recognize the good in others. And we have a media now because they want their clicks and they want their advertisers and they, I believe, have shirked their responsibility. And you can see it in their headlines one after another. No wonder Americans are so damn pessimistic. My God, inflation is down low now. Hell, the unemployment rate's wiped. 3%. Has that ever happened in your lifetime? Most times in American history, 3% unemployment, people would be yeah, in the streets. Pretty darn good. Yeah. And I'm not, I think that's not a partisan comment. Hell, there's a lot to be critical of everyone. But the point is that the media has lost its way. And God forbid you criticize them. I did it my first time when I was in this position, my first year, and it was some political writer who was a hack for a Harrisburg paper. He came after me so hard. And you should have seen that all the people who are their comments online, it was awful. And I thought, damn, don't ever be a fool again, Carmichael, and criticize the press in print. And the floodgates were open. And thank God I operate a small pond and no one gives a damn about what I say. But <laughs> it's fine. I get that. It's, that's cool. I hope we're going to be just fine. I do hope that we're not on a trajectory in which, oh, you lose an election, fake news is behind it too. Somehow, some way, the ballots weren't counted. I hope that's not the road we're headed down. Yeah, let's hope not. This has been fascinating. I want to shift a little bit to Penn State. We're going to put you in the Lions Den, brought to you by <laughs> our friends at Lions Pride and reminisce about your time yeah. at University Park. Remember to visit lions-pride.com to pick up all your summer apparel and gear. So Pete, to start the section off, after your uh, your master's and PhD at Penn State, and when you went into the working world, how did your time at Penn State prepare you for that early part of your career? There was nothing like a seminar at the graduate level at Penn State to be surrounded by peers who had the same passion and commitment for the past, created a real collaborative learning environment and they have professors who were so invested, not just in our professional outcome of our career, but in our intellectual development. I came to Penn State to study under Gary Gallagher. Gary Gallagher is a noted civil historian. He left Penn State and ended his career at the University of Virginia. That's the only reason why I picked Penn State was because of him. And there were, of course, many others who did the same. I, I, I was immediately, again, taken by his desire to push me intellectually, to make sure that I never felt comfortable with the things that I thought that I knew. But that above that, he cared as many of my other professors did about me as a person. And you know, it's 
graduate school can be very isolating and very lonely. I was really away from home for the first time. And he was a, he's like a father to me. In fact, I'm going to have breakfast with him tomorrow morning. (laughs) I see a lot of my Penn State buddies. You know how it is. Listen, I commuted as an undergrad. So I didn't make those kinds of connections that you all probably made with your buddies when you were an undergrad. But you know how it is. If you haven't seen them for a while and you see them and you're just like yourself again, right? You connect. And I just saw one of my Penn State buddies. I hadn't seen him in years, maybe 15 years. Uh, I just saw Mike Gabriel teaches at Cutstown. It was great. It was just, he's got to meet my daughters. I think one of my daughters might go to school there. And that sense of solidarity that you make with your fellow graduate students, it's friends for life and, and a shared passion that you have for history is just the cement there that brings it all together. Toughest question of the podcast. <laughs> Favorite Penn State memory? You know, there's so many. This is how much I love Penn State. My first wife, I got married at Penn State for in a chapel. And had, wow. I don't think they, and no, we're Nittany Inn. I heard someone told me that the Nittany Lion Inn is no more, that you can't. We rented that space out. Now, that marriage, unfortunately, did not survive. But my point being is that I love Penn State so much that it eclipsed that bad memory of getting married <laughs> on campus. I love the fall at Penn State. I love walking in front of the library down Old Main. I love those giant, beautiful trees. I love how crisp the evening air was. I love the whole feel of the place. And so I always just immersed myself in that. And then I love the surrounding communities. I love Bowlesburg. I thought Bowlesburg was just this fantastic town. Is it Duffy's? Is that the hamburger place there? I used to love to go to that as well. And uh, that was... Is that the one with the big... uh, They have the big cow on top? (laughs) The big cow. I never made it to the big cow. Duffy's happens to be right Duffy's is different. Okay. But here's my favorite state in that moment. And I'm lucky, to be honest, that I did get my butt kicked. And I deserve to get my butt kicked. And your audience says, oh, my God, what did he do? (laughs) All right. This is when... The uh, basketball team played in the old old gymnasium. So what was the, what did they call the old gym? Recall, recall. Yeah, just recall, right? Yeah. Which it drove me. I was crazy. I got there. I was like, "What? I'm playing pickup basketball on recall? This is where the, the varsity team plays? That's insane! Like, I, that would never happen in Bloomington. We'd never go to the assembly hall. Get to play pickup, right? So we play pickup. All right. So now here we go. IU, my favorite Indiana team of all time. They were all Hoosiers who were starting, all guys from Indiana. They hadn't lost a Big Ten game. They were ranked one or two in the country, and they're coming into Rec Hall. And it is packed. These guys who played for Indiana, many of them had played in gyms that were bigger in high school than what was Rec Hall. They couldn't believe it. I had my Indiana gear on, but I had student tickets, right? And I was in the the Penn State. I had to do it. I wasn't going to betray me. That's where I'm from. And man, I'm telling you, Indiana got a break. The refs gave it a go. I mean, wow. And Knight came out the next, Bobby Knight, the Indiana coach, came out the next day and said, he said, the better team did not win last night. And he was absolutely right. The next day when I was in class, Gary Gallagher was, I was TAing for him. And he wrote on the chalkboard, it was a GoFundMe account to pay Pete Carmichael because Pete Carmichael clearly had paid off the refs the night before. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the great sports moment. I think the one thing that I wish that was up and running a little bit more, but it is now, is the Honors College. I know some students who have gone there. They just think the world of that experience as well. They have their own building. I don't believe they had that when I was there. It's great to see that they've got that honors college. Like I, I enjoyed teaching there. It's where I first, my first classes I ever taught, Penn State, just my own. That was at Penn State. I also was a teaching assistant. And I really enjoyed getting to know the students there. It was a yeah, wonderful experience. Excellent. Great stories here. So again, you mentioned you went to IU as an undergrad. And sorry, we won't hold that against you. But <laughs> if you could go back in time and visit with yourself as an 18-year-old freshman about to start undergrad, what advice would you share? Take the time to get to know your professors. Go to their office hours, obviously with legitimate questions about the subject matter. But in getting to know them, 
it serves two functions, probably more than that. But first, you're going to do better in the class. You're going to understand the material on a deeper level. I think that's really important. But the other thing is that when it comes time to leave that institution, you now have an individual who can write letters of recommendations for you, who, who know you, who know your work, and who can give you, again, this is the third thing, who can give you the professional guidance and advice. I love mentoring in my office almost more than being in the classroom. And so I think that's the biggest thing. And now one more piece of advice. No such thing as a bad internship. Did you guys do internships during your summers? Sure. Absolutely. Do an internship. For sure. And I know they're hard to find to pay, but do an internship and do as many as possible. If you don't like it, good. Then you won't waste your time in doing that as a career. And and that's what you mentioned before. The Richards Civil War Center at Penn State. That's important work they do there. Getting those undergraduates opportunities in the field. Can't beat it. Can't beat it. Wow. Some great advice right there. And I must say, one, this has been just such a fascinating time that we've spent with you. It also changed my perspective, right? I must say, came in, I was like, all right, I hope this is a good podcast. I hope it's a good interview. I'm not too sure, you know, where we're going to go with this. One, you could sense your passion, right? You've made history come alive. I love your, what your thoughts are around history of being around good stories important ideas that evoke good questions. And then you really touched me when you said a big part of what you do is helping people find their way in the world. So of all the podcasts that we've had, and this is number 50, all of them have been great, but this one left me with a different perspective because of the way you approach your profession and the way, quite honestly, you approach your life. Well, it's very nice of you to say, and like I said, Penn State played a really big part in that. And so there's all these people on this journey we all take that have a great impact. And I'll meet, like I said, tomorrow morning at eight o'clock, I'll see Gary Gallagher, who is there for me at Penn State. And it's, and that's the point, this conversation that we have, I hope we all continue it as well. And always keep thinking, remember, this is what I tell my students. I say, I want you to leave my class confused. And what I mean by confused, I don't want you to be settled with answers. I never ever want you to think, God, I know it. And I know it for, it's a certainty to me now. No, I want you to always be questioning, always challenging yourself. And it's a great gift that Gary Gallagher gave gave to me and doing my part to pass it on to other people as well. Wow. Well, on that line, we'll end the podcast with, we are Penn State. Lion Legacy is a Baruta production. If you enjoy this Labor of Love podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it if you would subscribe and write us a review on your favorite podcast platform.